Thank you for joining us on another adventure in neuromonitoring. Please listen to the end of this cast for our disclaimers. You're listening to another stimulating adventure in the world of neuromonitoring. This is the IONM for Life podcast with your host, Scott Moore. I was a little terrified, like, what if I hadn't gotten that courage, you know, and then the patient did wake up with significant weakness in all four extremities. Courage, neuromonitoring community, courage. We have an important role in healthcare. We can make the call that allows a surgeon or anesthesia team member to change the outcome of a procedure. We can sound the alert that preserves a patient's quality of life. It's a tall order. It's a big responsibility. But take heart. As a neuromonitoring specialist, your profession is built on sound scientific literature. Published papers recommend the impact our service has on the patient care process. That should give you some courage. But don't take my word for it. Find out for yourselves. Have the courage to read the latest journal articles, either in the Neurodiagnostic Journal or from some other sources. If you're an educator in our field, get the takeaway lessons from literature into the hands of those you mentor and train. But wait a minute. Not every bit of new research or research that's been with us for some time should be taken at face value. I'm pleased to announce that the IONM for Life project is kicking off a new campaign called Under the Hood, where we take a closer look at the literature, the journal articles, the clinical bulletins, and established policies upon which our profession operates. We're going to talk to the people putting papers out there, organizing the journals, and making the decisions that affect how we get reimbursed. And we're going to ask some questions. Look, as neuromonitoring professionals, you have the right and responsibility to question and examine the information that is out there. The papers that are published. The decisions made by an insurance company as to what should be reimbursed and what shouldn't. You should be curious as to why these decisions are made. What criteria and evidence leads to these conclusions. If a paper recommends neuromonitoring for a procedure type, Is that paper making a sound decision based on solid evidence? If an insurance payer decides there's insufficient data to support reimbursement for neuromonitoring, then what resources are they drawing that conclusion from? Why? How? These are the questions you should ask as a healthcare professional and as a participant in real science. Don't worry. A good sound argument will stand up to close scrutiny and be better accredited for it. Definitely worry because an argument not built on solid rock may collapse. That's our campaign, to encourage you to ask why and how, and to get to know the people that are doing this kind of work every day. There are a lot of champions in our field that have their own platform, and you likely know who they are. We're going to take a closer look at some of the unsung heroes, and I'm happy to kick this campaign off with someone I very much respect, Catherine Hoverset. Catherine, hello, and thank you for being on the IONM for Life Adventures in Neuromonitoring podcast. Wonderful to be on. Thanks, Scott. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? So I've been doing uh, neuromonitoring um, in the operating room now for for 11 or 12 years. Um, I actually uh, did my master's in neuroscience and was doing some research, uh, doing Western blotting and things of that sort to start out. 
and uh, really enjoyed that aspect, the research aspect, but was kind of missing the human component. So spending uh, nights and, and days with rats and, uh, and then sadly sacrificing them and slicing through their brains eventually got to be a little bit, uh, uh, I guess, depressing as I, I started wanting a little bit more human interaction and just realized that I was missing a little bit more of that social component. And so I sought out that ended up seeking out this field and um, my kind of my start in the field was a little bit crazy. I uh, originally trained in Denver and then started out just traveling about the entire full first year of my career um, to uh, the East Coast quite a bit to to Georgia for a while. I would kind of station out there. Um, I was moved to St. Louis uh, for about eight months and really just pretty much traveled from there and uh, after that, I moved to Colorado for a number of years and was practicing out there. And then now I've been in Texas for the past uh, approximately seven years in the Dallas area where I'm originally from, working for Axis Neuro. Catherine is passionate about neuromonitoring and specifically teaching. She works in the Dallas, Texas area to get new hires and students on track for a successful career in neuromonitoring. I really enjoy teaching, so I'm the VP of Clinical Development for Axis Neuro um, and kind of oversee the, the education, um, training, quality assurance, research aspects uh, of the company. And it's been a really, uh, really fun, interesting thing to do. So I've had some really great opportunities since I moved to the Dallas area. I uh, was able to start teaching at uh, UT Dallas in their Masters of Neuroscience program. So I've been doing that now for, I think, about four years, running an internship program as well and through AXIS that uh, allows students to kind of get the inside view into neuromonitoring what's about, help them get placed for jobs and start doing practice setups and helping with uh, quality assurance measures and, and things of that sort. So really getting some hands-on experience with looking at the signals. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a fun adventure. Uh, we were kind of just joking about how healthcare professionals really kind of understand the kind of last minute changes and urgency and, and things that come up and, and just kind of the chaos that involves working in our field. And the fact that really some, some aspects of your personal life get sacrificed at many times. Um, that really makes it to where if you want to work in this field, you have to be passionate about it, I think. So it, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a fun time. <laughs> in addition to teaching, she still travels for case coverage and to train technologists on site in different markets. I get to travel quite a lot over the past year. I've been traveling almost every week just to train uh, new employees, especially in advanced modalities. So we do a number of those at some of the university hospitals around the state of Texas. And that's a really great opportunity to do a lot of different types of cases. And I uh, really enjoy that. We commiserated a bit over the unpredictability that IOM life is known for. So first of all, obviously, you've, you've done so much in our field already. You know, your uh, quality assurance and training and development of, of new, new talent. And obviously, you have to do a lot of traveling. Would you say it was a benefit to you that you started your career traveling because you get to see how other programs do different, you know, take different approaches or different techniques, learn different different case type? Would you say it's a benefit to your career? I wouldn't say it's for everyone. I think that, you know, one of the hardest parts of this job is it can be extremely stressful. I'd say kind of one of my strong suits is in general, I can kind of keep calm under stress. Um, so I've been blessed that even though I was traveling like crazy, 
I was stressed out all the time going to all these new facilities, sometimes being the first tech to step in the doors at, at a hospital um, to give the first impression. Um, that was very stressful, but it was rewarding too, because like you said, I got to see a lot of different types of cases, a lot of different personalities, and kind of learn how to, to break the ice in a room, you know, that maybe had a, a negative stigma or didn't right off the bat want you there per se. So it's it's been interesting to kind of experience all of these different scenarios and and learn from them and apply it apply it now and, and try and teach others the same. But she may be cutting back. I am currently um, pregnant and expecting in August, though, so I'll be cutting back that travel here pretty soon. Um, so poor Scott over here trying to, to nail me down has been a little bit of a challenge, um, given all of that, but... Congratulations, first of all. Is this your first? Yes, it is. It is. Okay, congratulations. <laughs> we, figured we better get a... Get to move on before it's too late. <laughs> so. That that is that is wonderful. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 definitely a balancing act when like you know you know you have two crazy schedules and, and I we have one child one, one daughter but you know it, it's awesome so uh, it, it does work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I was telling you earlier, Scott, that's why I I told my husband a few years back. You know, um, he was working in oil and gas and he was traveling a lot. Uh, his schedule was all over the place. Like one of us has to make a career change and it's not going to be me. So good luck. <laughs> so during the pandemic, he got really challenged to, um, you know, move into a different field and get a job that was a stable, uh, stable time and stable days and no weekends and, and all of that. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, best of luck to you. That is fantastic. So going back to what we were talking about before, breaking the ice at a new hospital. That was well said. We actually had to do the same thing. Uh, we started using their own service at a bunch of different hospitals that they were taking over. And, and so the UPMC would kick out the old program. They would bring us in. And I was like, kind of one of my, I, I, I call myself the Neuromodern Marines because basically I'm like one of the first people in the door to kind of take all the flack of like, we don't want you here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and this is how the other company did things. And, you know, and, and just kind of like kind of take that, that beating and just establish the good relationships. And, and it, it does teach you skills about how to be humble. <laughs> Yes. Be part of the team. Find a way to make yourself useful and, and integrate and take 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 time, give people grace, and eventually get to the point where you can just establish good relationships. And then it's like, it, they like to see you there. And it, it takes time. And then by the time I got that relationship established, they'd have picked up a new hospital. They'd moved me. <laughs> and the, and the, cycle, the cycle and the abuse starts all over again. Yes. Yeah. You understand that. <laughs> yeah. I would say that's definitely something we look for in people we hire as well. Kind of that... Um, humble and kind of how I describe it as like the chameleon attitude, um, you know, that that ability to kind of uh, work your way in and fit in in a variety of scenarios and just a really good emotional intelligence to read the room and know when's the right time to speak up and when's the right time to shut up. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. I like how you point that emotional intelligence, reading the room. Um, those, those are definitely the kind of veteran skills that sometimes don't get incorporated in a training you know, we teach people, this is where FPZ goes and this is how you change your filters. And, and it's like, this is how you read a room. This is how you integrate yourself as a, as a team player in, in the operating room and, and communicate effectively with people, right? These are good skills. I and mean, it sounds like you are teaching people that uh, as you travel from location to location to integrate your new hires. That's, that's good. Yeah. I, I think I rely too just on the team as well, right? So when they do have um, new hires coming in, they know their particular room and they're giving them the pointers, right? So we we spend a lot of time, even when we hire CNIMS, 
um, getting them accustomed to different rooms um, if they're particular. So that so they go with the tech who's been there the most. So they get that first hands-on, hey, do it this way, <laughs> you know, then you'll be successful in here. And I think that really goes the extra mile. And, you know, the surgical teams, they see that. They notice those kind of details much more than they do whether you put FBZ in the right spot or not, of course. Right. Yeah. The communication and the interface is such a big part of what we do that, that really kind of make or break a program when, whenever we, you know, you pick up a contract at a hospital or we're with a surgeon. You know, because so often, too often, it's it's like if we speak up or if we start going over to the the OR table, it's like, what's wrong? What's going on? You know, it's like communication with us can sometimes be a negative thing. Well, is something wrong with the patient? What's what's happening? So, you know, developing that trust through effective communication is so important and building that relationship. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, everything in our field comes down to having an effective relationship with the surgeon and the anesthesia provider and obviously your oversight position and being kind of the center point of that triangle, so to speak, is is really what makes you an effective professional in neuromonitoring. And right. you're, you're touching a lot of these key points. So I you know, definitely recognize and appreciate that. Now what you just said, I truly think that the that's the nature of the position is to be a liaison between all these different parties and make things run, run smoothly and efficiently. And um, that when some, a problem arises, you you can have that trust to, to actually make a difference instead of saying, oops, now that this, ha you know, this is the, how the patient wake up, but it could have been prevented. Yeah. My wife, uh, as a physician assistant, like I said earlier, uh, she made the point, basically uh, a CNIM in the operating room is kind of like the PA to the oversight physician, if that makes sense. That's essentially what your role is in, in you know, and that, that's how she equates it. I'm like, that actually kind of makes sense in a way. You know, you're you're expanding their reach, their ability to you know provide patient interpretation and, and take care of patients, and uh, you kind of have to be their eyes, their ears, and their hands and their feet. You know, yeah. and, uh, and and oftentimes a physician assistant has to be a liaison for the surgeon or you know, for the surgeon a lot of the times, and that's kind of what we are. So yeah. I think that's that's a really good point. So one thing I really want to emphasize on the IONO for Life Adventures in Neuromonitoring podcast in 2023 is the importance of having CNIMs, having them effectively engage with the scientific literature. I think this is the pathway forward for us to really get a seat at the table in healthcare, really make an impact, really get uh, healthcare, the surgeons, anesthesia teams on board with what value we bring to the to surgeries. I mean, a lot of the research is trending towards this understanding that that having a comprehensive monitoring package is really the key. You know, using the motors and the sensories and uh, the free run EMG uh, together, uh, not just saying we're going to run SSCPs and mail it in and call it a day on, on cases where maybe motors are really recommended by by the literature and the, and the, just the, the data that's out there. Now, we we really need to not be afraid to pick up and read research papers. We need to not be afraid to approach an MD or a PhD and say, hey, I want to get involved with some, with some real research. I want to help you write a paper. That's That goal has largely been supported by ASNM. And uh, the research, the uh, the research committee. So uh, you are you are the head of uh, the ESM research committee. I am actually a member of that. It's a privilege to be a member of that because there's some some really big names on that committee that are champions of neuromonitoring for years and years. Uh, so I'm, I'm very humble uh, and thankful to be a part of this, and I'm very thankful for your leadership <laughs> uh, of the committee. You've done a great job so far, and uh, this year in particular. Uh, ASNM has received a number of posters and papers, abstracts uh, for judging. And like probably what for my my time with the committee has been like a record number. It's just been a fantastic outpouring. We've had so many good entries and it's been it's been a privilege to read through them and 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 just say, wow, this is this is some great stuff. 
So do you want to talk about work of ASNM? You want to talk about the importance of us engaging the literature? Yeah, I think that's actually been kind of a hot topic among the research committee is how is it that we can outpour this information to the membership without violating copyright laws? So that really becomes the challenge that we face. Um, and I think if you have someone, um, you know, in your company, in your group, or even just someone that you maybe know from your past work or experience who kind of has access, unfettered access to those things, you can kind of develop that to, to start getting more of that information. So I think that was the biggest challenge for me until I started actually teaching at the university level where I got full access to the library again and was able to access the full text articles. Um, so a lot of times we can see the abstract, but we can't actually read the full text article. You know, of course, you can go on Google Scholar. That would be kind of, I think, the first line of, of looking um, is to pop on there because a lot of times there is free full text. There's also a lot of publications that are through open access journals or open access articles. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you're a member of Asset, you get their journal each quarter. So that's, I think, a gr another great thing to keep up with is just reading what you can get access to. And then on the other hand, I think, again, it comes down to the importance of developing our education on the inside, right? So different companies having access to those things, getting up, getting and reaching out to being a part of ASNM. I don't know if, how many people know this, but to join the ASNM Research Committee or really any other committee within ASNM, you just need to be a member. Um, so once you've established your membership, you can reach out uh, to Kayla Marconi and say, hey, I want to be a part of one of these committees. How can I join? How can I help? And I think, um, you know, without like a huge amount of responsibility, and maybe Scott, you can speak to that as well too, but I don't think um, being on these committees is a huge amount of responsibility. You kind of get that insider view too, to see what's going on and start getting access to some of this information. I think one thing that we're kind of aiming to do with ASNM is to start making lists of recent publications, perhaps quarterly or yearly or something like this that come out, and at the very least, listing the citations and links on to PubMed or wherever, um, so that at least, if nothing else, you can read those abstracts. And um, of course, you know, most of the time, if you're attending conferences and things, there, there typically is at least one lecture that's a review of the current literature, things like that, which I think is incredibly helpful because that gives you that bird's eye view of, you know, what's new, what's coming out, what what's interesting, what should I be paying attention to, um, and, and what should I be asking my education director for articles on if they can get their hands on those or, um, you know, different people, things like that. So that's kind of a good start. When it comes to uh, reaching out to your an MD or PhD or or other people in your organization maybe that you want to do some uh, research project or you want to submit a poster to the ASNM. Um, I think this is uh, a thing a, a topic that you got to do your a little bit of your own research first, right? And this could be some simple, like I said, Google Scholar looking on there. So you have a little background that you can say, hey, I looked into this and I read some things on this. Can you help me expound on it? Can you give me more information? Can you help me, um, you know, point me in the right direction? Um, because the truth is people in those positions are typically going to be really, really busy and they have the knowledge in there and they want to share it with you, um, but they're going to give you the lead and then you need to follow that lead 
and take the extra effort and time to uh, see where it goes and say, come back with some new information. Hey, have you seen this? What do you think of this? Right. And then, then now this is an even exchange relationship. Um, so they're providing that expertise and you're kind of doing some of this legwork to say, hey, I found this information. Have you seen it? What do you think? Um, so I think that that can be a really good way to approach and kind of breach that breach that gap it is um, by first keeping yourself knowledgeable on even just the foundational and basic things, right? So all these CNM concepts that people take their CNM and then they forget, keep brushing up on it. When you're looking at your signals in the OR, keep what's the generator? What's, you know, the blood supply of this? Like you need to know those things, right? So keep brushing up on these things and thinking about how they apply uh, to the research that's coming out and how you think you could apply that to some new concepts or, um, or what kind of uh, gaps are you seeing within our field that need to be filled? I think it's a very good point is you, you get enough exposure in the operating room day after day, you start to see things where you just almost trend out in your brain on the subconscious level. And you're like, this is something that we should explore. Is there any relationship, any correlation between this factor and this factor, right? Um, you know, how uh, the effects of desfluorine versus ISO uh, when, you know, we're trying to let anesthesia wear off and get our motors back, for example. Just this random topic, you know, that maybe someone would be like, you know, I wonder if there's a difference. I wonder if there's a difference if they used ISO and, and you know, and let it wear off or letting twitches come back, uh, you know, the effect of, you know, on Sugamidex. There's just so many, there's so many concepts out there that, you, you, you know, you just get enough exposure and you just, you start to get curious. You should be curious. You're, you know, when you're a CNIM, you're a professional, you know, you're providing a clinical service. You may not be a doctor, you may not be, you know, the anesthesia provider or a nurse, but you still uh, are engaging in direct patient care. You should be curious. You should want to continue to improve your skill sets, learn, learn from each other, learn from people in our field, right? One of the best ways to do that that's going to make you effective in having conversations with the surgeons and the anesthesia team is going to be to effectively engage the scientific literature. So we have to learn. And I think our educators need to take the lead on this. And, and a lot of them do, obviously. And, you know, I would give them credit, but I think we need to encourage people not to be afraid to pick up a research paper and read it and try to get the, at least the takeaways from it. Uh, and if you're a clinical educator for a, you know, a mid-sized to a large neuromonitoring program, or even a small one that has maybe five or 10 people in it, you should be willing to get your people engaged and saying, all right, here's, here's a really good research paper. Let's, let's unpack this. Let's attack it. Let's see where it might be wrong or, or where it might, might be weak, I should say. Uh, there's a lot of papers out there that will say neuromonitoring doesn't make a difference. You should be learn. You should learn how to like vertically analyze that. You know, put it up on jacks, take the wheels off of it, see what's under the hood, and say, is you know, is this a strong argument or is this an argument that we can say, you know what, I don't think this really is an effective argument. And here's another paper that actually counters this. There's two papers that counter it, right? And I think everyone in neuromonitoring, and this is going to be one of one of our big pushes this year. I want people to have a like five neuromonitor papers in their head, just the key takeaway items that if they walk in the operating room and, you know, we've all had this app before where a fellow walks in or, you know, a resident walks in and a CRNA or an MDA walks in or surgeon even and says, I don't know why we're using neuromonitor for this. Doesn't, you know, and you can answer, well, here's why. <laughs> this this is a paper I read. I can definitely, you know, give you the link so you can go check it out on, you know, on PubMed or whatever later. Like I said, you don't you don't need to fight your battles in the operating room all the time, but you can you can say, well, there's some good research saying this is why we're doing it, this is why we're here, and I can I can send you the link if you want to check it out later, you know, and and just kind of hand, stand on that solid ground, stand on the high ground of the scientific literature which supports neuromonitoring being an effective tool 
in spine surgeries, brain surgeries, vascular surgery, et cetera, right? Right. Now, I think there's nothing that speaks to that more, too, than when you, as you start to gain experience, your own personal experience to see when a change happens and you are, you know, able to resolve it or not able to resolve it and see the patient's outcome and follow them into post-op and are, you know, checking on them and sending messages to the rest of the surgical team, texting them, hey, how's that patient doing and things like that, that it really does become um, a true, a true situation where you think, okay, this, this is not voodoo. <laughs> this really is telling me something, you know, how many times have we heard that or, um, but, but the other part of it, I think Scott, you touched on an important part point is, um, there is a lot of controversial literature coming out there and it is important to look under the hood, right? So some of these huge studies that are coming from the national patient in sample, right? Um, there've been multiple talks at conferences on this lately, and there's been a couple of publications that have come out as well kind of debunking some of these saying, you know, where's the data coming from, right? So we not only have to look at what the outcome of the information is, but we have to look at the the actual methods. And uh, if they're pulling their information from a database where possibly there aren't any neuromonitoring codes being used because, you know, private companies is doing it and, and so it's not being coded by the hospital, then how many of these procedures that were marked as not being monitored actually truly were monitored? Um, and then that completely changes what the results, uh, what the results say. And, and, you know, we won't ever know truly maybe what that is. There have been some that have guessed, um, made guess, educated guesses on what that would, what that would be, who are way smarter than I am. Um, but I think that's an important point to make is really looking at the methods. And there have been other papers too that have said, you know, monitoring is an effective that had good, uh, good methods, but maybe there was an, a math calculation error. And again, this this kind of comes back to, uh, you know, even if this isn't your expertise, um, you know, you ha you haven't done your PhD and gotten all of the research methods and statistical analysis down, uh, it's all still again Googleable. So, you know, at the end of the day, you really can be self taught uh, to certain levels with enough drive and. So there are definitely little aspects of it. You know, I tell my uh, students and my trainees all the time, I'm like, if you don't know what something means or you don't know what something is, I'm like, you need to look it up first and then you need to talk to me about it and tell me what you know and ask me what you think about it. Um, but, you know, don't just turn, you know, turn to the surgeon and say, what's this, you know, thing they have? They're going to be like, what, are you kidding me? Like, just look it up, you know, right? <laughs> Take that extra step and try and just Google. Be a good Googler. You know, there's it's all at our fingertips now. It's a good first step. Yeah, uh, and honestly, when I started in neuromonitoring, oh man, <laughs> when you know, there really. wasn't, it was like nothing online. I mean, I think there was like a couple of resources. Like the only thing that was out online that was maybe even a resource was uh, uh what's Joe Hartman? Joe Hartman obviously had mm -hmm. his website up, but I think that might have been it at that point. I mean. Uh, Asset wasn't didn't have a strong uh, online presence, uh, and over time, obviously, Asset and ASNM have done really done so much. I mean, you know, we're very thankful for the, what the professional societies do for our field. You know, so now today, like you said, I mean, just about anything, and this doesn't even apply to neuromonitor, but just you know, what is a surgical instrument? What is how is how is a laminectomy performed? I mean, hemilaminectomy performed, or something like that. You right. can go look at was a video for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you should you should do that if, when you're early in your career. Even now, I mean, I've been in this field oh man, 17 years or so, and I lost track. But but you know, there are still things I'm like, you know, a new new procedure comes out or a new technique, come, you know, new a new 
device comes out, you know, all the go online and learn about it because always something new to learn. You're never going to know it all. And you should, that should be part of your, your DNA when you're a healthcare professional, like, like a C, like a, like a CNIM is be willing to learn, be, be interested, be your one, you should want to learn. And, and you should want to focus a lot of that attention on, uh, on the, the, the research, the literature, because that's, that's really what's ultimately then they're going to prove that, you know, what, what you do matters. And if you just sit there and, and day after day, you just walk in an operating room where people think neuromonitoring doesn't make a difference. And you keep hearing that. And eventually over time, you just sort of subconsciously accept that you sit in the corner and maybe you don't want to make the call at the end of the day. You're like, well, there's a change and no one's going to hear what I have to say. I mean, that's a terrible place to get to, right? Because you're worse than, than not helpful. You're actually almost dangerous. But you can see how that ment mentality kind of breaks down in, in a lot of, of our colleagues where maybe they're in an environment where they just, they don't feel like they're valued or what they do is valued. And if that's the case, you need to change that culture. You need to do what you can to change, help change that culture and, and recognize at the very least, in, you know, to yourself that what you do matters. You're not just some add on peripheral that, you know, someone can bill for. I mean, you're making a difference in protecting the patient and preserving patient quality of life. That's important. Um, and I think that speaks to too, just going that extra mile um, and being having pride in your career and and what you bring to the table. Because, for example, a colleague had re recently told me that um, you know a surgeon that she normally works with had you know done like a laminectomy the day before, didn't you know not using neuromonitoring typically just uses for hardware cases, and had the next day when they were in a case together said yesterday was terrible without you here. I don't like doing cases without you here, you know? And so that was sort of a real testament to um, her contribution as a teammate and the fact that on a case that should have been a lot more simple than the typical cases they do together, there was a disruption in the flow, the workflow, um, even though typically people complain that with putting in our electrodes and things, right, uh, that we make it longer and, and that sort of thing. But just the amount of just helpfulness and understanding of the flow of the room um, actually made this surgeon want her there for a case that, it, you know, he didn't feel it was indicated for. So it's kind of a, a really, you know, just made my heart swell up real happy. Like that's such an amazing thing to hear. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. We should, we should all get to the point where we're just, we're part of that team, you know, where they just, they're glad to see us in the walk in the room because we're going to be, we're going to be an asset to the procedure. And, uh, and I, you know, I do understand, obviously this is, this has historically been the big argument against neuromonitoring is the, the surgeon and the, and the hospitals don't want anything that's going to slow the procedure down, which is a legitimate concern because, I mean, time is patient outcome. Time is is money, obviously. I mean, I mean the second you will the patient in the operating room, uh, charges are going to keep racking up. And, you know, you can't sit there and take an hour to, <laughs> to do a setup and just take forever. To do, or, you know, whatever time you're spending has to have add value to the case, right? I mean, if they're going to do image guidance registry, it takes time, right? But that's an added value to the patient's outcome. Neuromonitoring has to be the same way. We get we get in there. We should be as expeditious as possible, but not rushed, right? I mean, you shouldn't be like rushing us to get out of the way. We should be able to do what we do, get the electrodes on the patient, get the good baseline data we need. If it takes an extra minute, it takes an extra minute, but you get that baseline data and you have, you know, you have a solid foundation on what's to monitor that that procedure. I'd be curious, and I'm, I'm I think I already know the answer. I think you, we, we all know the answer. How many, how many legal cases have ever gone to trial where they said, well, we discontinued or didn't effectively use neuromonitoring because we didn't want to slow the case down. I mean, it's it's obviously not an argument you can make. And there's a reason for that. It's because at the end of the day, not wanting to slow down the procedure and sacrificing neuromonitoring result is is counterintuitive to patient care. You really want to see our field get to the point where you know we're given the time we need. Not that we take 
excess time. We need to be able to work, if, you know, as effectively and rapidly as anyone else in the operating room for the sake of the patient, right? But if we need an extra minute to get the data right, we should get that extra minute, you know, and that's because that's important because if we don't get that, we can't effectively do our job. Yeah. And I think that's an, a good point. So this just makes me remember a case um, I had that was a an ACDF. And, um, you know, typically the surgeon didn't like to get a baseline before the shoulder roll went in, kind of slowing things down. And on one particular day on a patient that wasn't myelopathic or anything, um, you know, was able to get beautiful sensories in all extremities. And the patient had five of five preoperatively. So I think it's important to pay attention to those things to get a really thorough pre-op assessment before you're going into a case. Um, but couldn't get a single motor, uh, couldn't get any motors from deltoids down. And it became a situation where I, you know, had a, co- a very difficult conversation, kind of almost head to head with the surgeon of, you know, or he said, do you want me to cancel this case and wake this patient up because you can't get motors? And I said, if we take out the shoulder roll and the motors don't, you know, appear, then yeah, I'm scared to tell you that, but I'm really, I'm scared for this patient. Um, and he said, you know, I can't do this surgery without the shoulder roll in. So I don't know what you want me to do. I'm like, well, can we just pause for a moment, take the shoulder roll out, see what happens. Um, and then, you know, you make the call after you make the call of what you feel is appropriate after that. And, um, it took a lot of advocating. I was I was terrified. Um, I was terrified for the patient. I was terrified for myself. Was I going to be allowed back in this room? And we pulled the shoulder roll out and um, sure enough, got perfect motors in every single muscle group down, you know, deltoids, you know, biceps, forearms, hands, TA, feet, everything. Um, just big, beautiful, booming motors. You know, the surgeon actually proceeded doing the surgery without the shoulder roll in. <laughs> Um, somehow, and it was successful. It was kind of one of those star moments that sticks out in your brain of what would have, like, you know, I'm, I was a little terrified, like, what if I hadn't gotten that courage, you know, and then the patient did wake up, uh, you know, with significant weakness in, you know, all four extremities. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a thing. And I think sometimes it takes that extra, help from someone either on your team you know we frequently i have techs reach out to me hey can you pop online for a second just check this out look at my signals am i am i going nuts what do you think or you know um you know asking you know if you feel confident you know seeing what your ip is saying you know things like that is it's really important to kind of give you that courage to speak up at the right moments um and and that what's that's kind of what ends up making or breaking a lot of situations i think because uh, when you're in the you're stressed and you can't really hard to think with your right mind. You don't want it to be true. You're like, maybe if I just increase it a little higher, it'll, it'll come in, you know, but at a certain point you, you, your heart's telling you, you've got to say something. And, and, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. It's, you know, those moments where you see that signal drop and you're like, oh, I'm looking up. I know the max is going to be 1.5. Max is going to be 1.5. No, <laughs> max hasn't changed. Okay, this is real. (laughs) That that story is a great testimony to the intervention we make in neuromonitoring, which I think a lot of the times actually defeats us when it comes to reporting data. Is we're this, you know, there's no top tier neuromonitoring data really. I mean, it's not like we're doing this on rats or something like that. You mentioned that earlier. Like I had done animal physiology as well for a period of my my life, and I just (laughs) didn't like to move (laughs) it. But having said that, no, it's like, I mean, you know, we're not, we're not doing, you know, blind studies with, with neuromonitoring a lot of times. We're just, 
when we when we pull pull the you know the actual clinical data out, what we're doing is we're running our monitor service to protect that patient. And if something goes wrong or something starts changing, we make an we make a call. The surgeon makes an intervention. Patient improves. Everything's fine when they wake up. You know, and that I think that sometimes it skews numbers when people when people want to kind of kind of take a critical eye of neuromonitoring. Um, having said that, I mean, I I had a very similar experience back in January, and and this is where everything is working in perfect harmony, where the the surgeon relies on you, trusts your data, trusts your reporting, and acts on it, and then basically can make an intervention. A lot of this time, I mean, and this is often I think overlooked, I should say is the impact of neuromonitoring on positional changes. And, you know, there, there's a lot of data for procedures that aren't even related to neurologic function that, you know, you put the position of the arms or the legs or whatever, uh, the neck even, um, can, you know, can basically cause deficits when the patient wakes up. Mm-hmm. Neuromonitoring can help identify those interoperatively in real time and allow us to make changes, right? Uh, say, hey, look, you need to change that position of that arm. And I can ask anesthesia, hey, can you want to check the position of that arm? Do you want to, like, you know, see if you can take, release the tape, take, you know, change the padding on it. I, uh, back in January, I worked with a surgeon who buys in with neuromonitoring. And uh, basically, we had the arm padded a certain way with gel, gel pads, or wasn't padded enough, I should, as I should say. And we reported the change and said, you know, and uh, obviously, we worked through it. We did as much troubleshooting as we could, all the, the typical things, worked with anesthesia. Eventually, the surgeon uh, the surgeon actually unscrubbed, went on, padded that arm uh, uh, himself with uh, donuts. And uh, scrub back in, and just that level of like, I I I believe what you're saying. Uh, we're gonna do everything we can. You know, I'm actually gonna get involved with myself and 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 make that change. The signal did come back. Uh, we were able to like kind of get you know kind of get get everything back to baseline again. And uh, but just that degree of buy-in where it's like, okay, I believe what you're saying. This is important. I don't want this patient to wake up with an arm, you know, a deficit, uh, a plexus injury or anything like that. And and I'm gonna actually intervene myself and. Uh, you know, just you like to see that, you know. You hate, you actually hate to see that happen, but you like to see the surgeon like having that kind of buy-in with what you know the value that our monitor can bring. So, um, great stuff. So, what's uh, what's ASNM going to uh, research up going to be up to over the next uh, course of 2023? What's what's coming up with them? I think we're still in the works of figuring that out, and um, I think this is where it becomes important for the members to reach out and say what they'd like to see, um, because really and truly, this committee is here for you. Um, so we want to give the membership things that are valuable and help them uh, with their education, their research, and their their surgical teams. Uh, I think kind of one of the projects, again, initially that's been discussed and thrown around to, to come to fruition would be to create those lists, um, those searchable lists of references. So you can kind of search maybe um, by topic or by date, right? Some of uh, the most uh, popular or important papers in neuromonitoring and have access to this database. And again, it kind of is all boiling down to copyright and things like that, right? Like we can always list a bunch of sources, but the, the tricky part I think for for us as professionals becomes getting a hold of, of the full text um, and finding people who have access to those those kinds of things. Um, and key, and really, again, just staying connected, right? Like so many of us kind of, you would you know, say that we're kind of like an island, like you go do work with your team and you might not really come into contact with other uh, CNMs or other IOM professionals very often. So taking that extra step to reach out and um, say, hey, you know, this is my name. I work, I'm a CNM. I'm, 
I'm interested in connecting with you and um, following people that uh, that can post different different content or different information and and links to things. I see stuff on LinkedIn all the time, for example. Um, another thought that's been thrown around is, um, at least with use of the abstract, writing some little summaries on important papers that come out so that if nothing else, there's some sort of uh, summary about what the the paper includes. Um, and again, without reaching copyrights, the other, the tricky part. And then lastly, I'd say, and this is more on, I guess, the education end, so I can't fully speak to this, but I think there's some interest too in kind of making the education a little bit more accessible, possibly through through an app or something like this so that it's it's easier to have on the go and listen to uh, content more easily. So keep your keep your ears and eyes peeled uh, for the great things coming up. Uh, I, I think it's uh, this is actually really exciting and it sounds like the research committee, ASNM in general, is really focusing on, on what the community needs and and hopes to deliver and, and is listening to them. So that's great. You know, really appreciate everything ASNM has done already for our field. Uh, I'm pleased to be a small portion of it uh, in, in, in a small way. And I encourage other people, get involved, reach out to the, the, these professional societies. Um, be creative, come come with ideas. You know, you don't yeah. just, you can say, hey, how can I help? And you also can say, hey, I have an idea. You know, <laughs> and, right. and they'll listen and, and they'll listen and you'll make your, your profession better and, and you'll, you'll move your profession forward. And it's it's just a great thing to, to get involved like that. So. Catherine Overzet, uh, thank you so much for being in the program. Uh, Catherine is VP of Clinical Development for Axis Neuromonitoring. She is head of the ASNM Research Committee. Thank you for all you do in our field. Really appreciate your time being on the program. Really appreciate all of your insights. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Scott, again for having me. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IONM for Life podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please remember to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. Join us next time for more stimulating adventures. This podcast is not affiliated with any medical device or neuromonitoring company. At the present time, the IONM for Life podcast does not accept any advertising money. All opinions expressed on the IONM for Life podcast do not necessarily represent the views and opinions held by myself or anyone associated with the IONM for Life podcast. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. I welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors.